Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to this very special edition of Atlanta Business Radio. It's time for Tuesdays with Corey. Today's episode is brought to you in part by ARC, American Reprographics Corporation. If you print with it, print on it, or simply want it printed, head on over to arcinatlanta.com. Or better yet, reach out to Mindy Godwin. Let her know that Corey and Stone sent you. You can reach her at 770-394-2465. All right. Here's your host, Corey Rick. Well, thank you, Stone. Today on the Tuesdays with Corey show, we have yet another fantastic guest. Terry Johndahl comes to us with an impressive wealth of business experience, perhaps most notably with over 20 years of experience as a CEO of Cab Incorporated. Terry's vast business experience includes experience with strategy, execution, finance, banking, deal structures, sales and marketing, quality assurance systems, management of U.S. and overseas manufacturing, international business culture, negotiations, engineering management, and project management. She's advised on multiple corporate boards and as an unquestionable leader in her field without circumstance. When she is not contributing to all the above, Terry enjoys jet skiing, beautiful sunsets on her boat, and oil painting. Terry, welcome. Hi, how are you? We're great. Thanks for having us. Hey, no problem. You're going to be a great guest. Terry, take some time and introduce yourself further to the listenership here. Well, I'm the CEO of CAB Incorporated, and, and we're an industrial products company headquartered in Buford, and we have manufacturing operations in Texas and Washington. We have a warehouse in Canada. We also have engineering and quality operations in China and India. So we've grown since I became a shareholder in uh, 1995 from three and a half million to currently we're a little over 50 million. We had a peak of about a hundred, a little over a hundred million in uh, the just before the crash. And, uh, but we've dropped back to a highly diversified, uh, strong foundation. Congratulations on all of your successes. You've been CEO for over 20 years. Something like that. I've been in this particular industry, though, since 1984. So, And I had been executive vice president before uh, I was CEO. And um, and then in a predecessor company that we subsequently acquired, um, I was director of marketing. And I actually started out uh, as controller and, and all-around everything person. So... Uh, and and that business was about to go under, so it was a situation where you had to figure out what it took to keep it alive, and it was a great learning experience. Yeah. Well, it sounds like with all of your experience, uh, what, is all of that advantageous in your role now uh, as CEO? Absolutely. And the thing about it um, for me uh, is those years and seasoning allow you to make decisions uh, more – calmly and more intuitively because it's in your DNA. You you know, I can look at information and I'm really data driven. So I like to look at the data. I like to ask the questions, get the generally the the I I like the gut feel of my team. I like to make sure they understand you know, it, do they think it's sixty percent likely that something's going to happen or whatever? So I'm looking for all these metrics. I gather all that information, and then 
I like to be decisive and quick about making decisions, but I, I like to make sure that I got that gut right. How did you get to Atlanta? Good question. I was born in Northern California, lived there for the first 25 years of my life, um, up in Mendocino County, which is uh, in the heart of the Redwoods wine country and marijuana country. And in the 70s, my father was the county sheriff, and he was leading the cause to eradicate marijuana. It was a great time to be a teenager up there. <laughs> and, and I could do a whole hour on those stories, but... Um, but uh, I, um, I I went to school at the local college and worked full time, and I did an office automation project for the county where I raised a million dollars from Burroughs Corporation for a, a public private partnership model project with their mini computers, microcomputers, just before IBM PC came out. Then I uh, went to Maryland and started selling. Uh, PCs for computer land and I was making pretty darn good money. I was the top salesperson for the less than year that I was there. But in the meantime, a company that a friend of mine was a manager of was sold to a group of Greek investors and they were trying to bring their uh, uh, money to the U.S. from Greece, which was nationalizing industries. That company um, acquired a U.S. company with a pipe flange company that had entities in California, Texas, and Florida, and they had opened a, a headquarters in Annapolis, Maryland. And when they bought it, it was a $6 million company, and it was making money and, and doing good, all 100% domestic manufacturing of pipe flanges for big hydropower projects and water and wastewater piping. Well, within a couple of years, they really weren't small business people by any means, and they had built a huge overhead structure. And they were, um, they had dropped their revenues down to two and a half million a year and were losing a million dollars a year. And they were going to shut it down. I was selling computers, meanwhile, and, and I understood the accounting side of it and, and general business side of it. And, but the manufacturing piece was very intriguing to me and I didn't understand it. And I was always so, so curious. So when they were going to shut this business down, a friend of mine who was a middle manager, um, I said, hey, why don't we write a business plan for, for the Greeks and, and suggest that we take it over and see what we can do with it? Well, I mean, I was 25 years old. This is the stupidest idea in the world. But fortunately, I was so young, I didn't know any better. And I'll tell you, that works well when you're when you're young and stupid. There's some cases where that's a, a, a benefit. Was it advantageous not to be afraid? Absolutely. And, and my mother, <clears throat> who, who died in 2002, she uh, was – as much as she lived in the shadow of my father as sheriff, she was fierce. And she always encouraged me to do whatever. You know, there's there's nothing you can't do. And so I just always thought, hey, why not try? And can't is a word that I have a hard time with. But anyway, I went to – so we I knew went, we were going to get along well. <laughs> so I went from – in Maryland, we we took over this company, shut down the, the headquarters in Maryland, shut down the Florida operation, ultimately sold off the California operation and moved to Texas where we had a factory, walked in the front door of that um, on the first day, and it was half-inch of dirt on the floor in the office. It had been mothballed. And I stood in that doorway and went, whoa, what have I gotten into? <laughs> but, you know, you just hunker down, you do what it takes, and, and, you, and you push through. 
And we grew the company from two and a half million to about six and a half to seven million in three years. We stuck with them for about 10 years and then we were approached by the founder of, of CAB Incorporated here in Georgia to consider becoming shareholders. And he was a, a, a competitor who we were both well-respected mm-hmm. competitors, but um, not involved in manufacturing, but involved in distribution and, and importing from overseas. So we um, made a big decision. It was a big risk. It was a big risk to move to Maryland. It was a big risk to, to get involved with CAB. But we spent 10 or 12 years in Texas, and then I came to Georgia in 95. And in 99, we ended up acquiring the assets of that Greek company. And so we took it back over um, and acquired that manufacturing operation and under CAB's wing. And then we things went we, – we were focused primarily on pipe flanges. We were the experts in the country on very large diameter flanges that were 14 to 16-foot diameter. So we had large machining capability. That was a natural – for the um, early days of the wind energy market where they started building instead of the lattice towers you would see out of Palm Springs, they began to build tubular towers. And tubular towers, each section has these big, like 16-foot diameter flanges that hold them together. So we were um, in the very early days building the first ones in the U.S. Um, for that industry in about 97 and um and then we ultimately took off we went offshore and developed um manufacturing capacity and and supply partners in Korea so we do a lot of business in in Korea also but that was um an industry that also evolved and the quality requirements became dramatically tighter so we had to learn and grow and and develop our skills and technical expertise those skills then allowed us to enter the the castings and forgings market, which pretty much covers about anything metal that you can see um, that's heavier than you know sheet metal. There's pretty much anything you can think of, and we've provided food processing equipment. We've provided we actually provided um, a part that's going on a. a, a Rocket that shall remain unnamed. It's it's not a uh, mission critical part, but it's still going to be um, up there in space. So so we're doing some cool stuff uh, across a lot of industries. With uh, dozens of years of experience, I, I'll bet you've seen a wealth of evolution. Is that a fair statement? I it it, it it's it's a major understatement. <laughs> I can tell you that. One of the things, for example, in the early days with the uh, Greeks, one of our uh, investors was from Greek, and he was assassinated by a terrorist group in uh, Greece called um, – I think it was called November the 17th. And I, you can Wikipedia them and see that they had created a list of industrialists, the top 10 or something industrialists they were going to assassinate, and he was one of them, and he refused to have bulletproof glass on his car and – they pulled up wow. at a stoplight and shot him uh, through his window. So, so uh, you know, I, you name it, we've probably seen it. <laughs> and 
it's uh, been a wild ride. Do you have a daily routine that you follow? Uh, you know, to me, I'm looking at this. You have all of this experience. Uh, well, with all of your experience on these boards, one question I had is when you sleep with all of your experience and how hard you work. Oh, my gosh. That is a great question. And I have to tell you. You don't? <laughs> no. Sleep is my number one priority because, you know, I should be the person that gets up at 6 o'clock and goes to the gym. But no, that's not my thing. But I have always, as I as I say, honored my circadian rhythm. And I push in my Fitbit, you know, we monitor, I monitor my sleep every day to see how much quality sleep that I get. And I try to sleep eight hours a day and, and, and sometimes nine if I can. But I have found that if I allow myself to get the sleep that I need, I am far more effective. Yeah. And so even if it means that I, I need to take off in the middle of the day at lunch and go have a little snooze. And by the way, when we built our office here in Buford, I, I put a nap room in downstairs, but I also built my house five minutes away so I can just run home to my pillow. But, you know, there were times during the downturn when my CFO and I were working all hours around the clock and she would run down and take a 20 minute snooze and, and it allowed us to be, um, much better. And I notice my ability to make decisions is, is much, much clearer when I'm rested. So. We're always in, I'm always interested to look at people's patterns and their routines. And, um, you know, some, uh, like to exercise, uh, in the morning, others, you know, do it during lunch, others at night. And I'm always interested to know with successful people like yourself, kind of what makes them tick. And it's interesting to just learn about, learn about all those things from each person. Well, the other thing that I have uh, discovered in the last 10 years is, uh, painting. And I went to one of those, uh, drink and paint events. A bunch of girls dragged me out to, I, I got, I got hung on the, they said drink and, and out. And I thought, Oh, okay. And the paint part was kind of an added bonus. But when I found out that you could learn how to do this, you didn't have to be born with a natural talent. Mm. I was so shocked. But the other thing that was, um, incredible to me was the escape. I found my mind could wander and think about things that I wouldn't ordinarily have – those brain cells hadn't been touched in a, in a long time. So so I've taught myself to oil paint and I do some, some other painting uh, as well in the last 10 years. And I did um, a little mini course at the Hudgens Art Center in Gwinnett and, and I've gone to – some little week long conferences, but mostly it's about just practicing. But that has been a huge, um, relaxation opportunity for me. And then I have to add, I, um, married after I, you know, I had some trial runs earlier, but, but I married my current. I, I don't think you're alone with that. <laughs> it's, it, and I, I married my current husband in 2005 and he is, he, Subsequently, he retired from Hewlett Packard and he has been such a strong positive support. And now, and I, I tell anybody who will listen, finding the right life partner is yeah. a huge key to success. So you I think you're right about that. I, I, I doesn't matter who you are. If you are around and I'm all about getting toxic people out of your life. I wished I'd learned it a lot earlier, 
But, but. Yeah, I don't think you're alone with that either. Yeah. But I think that having can-do people in yeah. your uh, universe is huge. You know, you mentioned something a while back, uh, and it's shutting off, you know, hitting the reset button. And, you know, painting does that for you. What, what else allows you to hit the reset button? Walking out on Lake Lanier Islands, we, we go out there and they have miles of very eight foot wide, uh, trails and, and it's just so beautiful and peaceful. Getting out on the jet skis and the boat on, on Lake Lanier is incredibly relaxing and, and, um, the sunsets out there just mind boggling and, and that, when I moved to Atlanta in 95, my intention was to work through the plan to acquire majority interest in CAB and then move it back to Texas. And I got here, and within a few years, I realized that Lake Lanier was a huge emerald in, yeah. in northeast Georgia, and I really enjoyed that, and I viewed it as a, a huge quality of life um, opportunity for me and for all the families in our company. But I also realized that the metro Atlanta area in general, I had access to legal expertise, accounting expertise. And, and you know, in, in, in the world of um, law, there's all kinds of attorneys who are, they might be experts in trade, they might be experts in freight, they might be experts in contracts, they might be experts in mergers and acquisitions, but I could find that all and, and I could get expertise that was transferable overseas. Yeah. So that plus the international airport, it, it's like the perfect world here. And then the natural beauty of the mountains, the sea, the, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. Of all the places I've lived, this feels so perfect to me. Yeah, there's a lot to like about it. I mean, uh, my wife and I live in the city, and we were visiting earlier before we came on the show that, you know, we're, uh, we don't have kids, so we eat out a fair amount. And so we're within a stone's throw of a lot of really good restaurants. Uh, if we want to go to a game, Atlanta United or the Falcons or Georgia Tech, it's, it's all, right there. And if you want to get away and go to the mountains for a weekend and get away, that, that's straightforward as well. And, you know, when I moved here, uh, you know, from Minnesota in April of 97, I moved to escape the snow and the winter. <laughs> and um, uh, I think that, you know, the trade-off is it's a little warmer for a little while longer, but you know, we've assimilated well, and it's funny, my, my family makes fun of me when I go back, and it's so cold, and I say, how do you guys live here? And they're like, really? You've lived here for, you lived here 33 years before you moved out, but I think there's a lot of redeemable qualities about Atlanta, no no question. Now, let me ask you, do your, does your family in the north um, say that, you, do they say you have a southern accent? No. Because it's crazy. When I go uh, to California, people say, you know, you're sounding Southern. Of course, when I go to Texas, they're like, you don't sound like you used to. And it, it's sort of like I'm, nobody owns me that they're, they're, um, they can't claim that I sound like anybody. But, but I, when I was originally doing sales in the eighties, it was all by telephone. And, um, cause, you know, that's just how it worked. And, I learned in talking to people around the country, you sort of try to pick up the cadence of who you're speaking with. And I think that is natural. I think if I spent, of course, if I spend more than three days in California, I imagine I probably sound more like them. It's like if I spend more than three days inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., I, 
I start agreeing with them and I, I need to come home quickly because it, it, it freaks me out. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think it is, you know, mirroring, uh, mirroring rather the people that you're interacting with and maybe following their cadence helps communicate. But I don't know that anybody would say that I have an accent, although I, I don't know. Nobody said that I do. I don't think you do, but I, except there is every once in a while I can hear the northern tier thing that, um, not the Fargo kind of thing, but every once in a while I hear just something. So I, 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 I since you touched on that, you know, there's, <clears throat> I can't tell you how many times uh, I got, I've been asked the question since I moved here. Have you ever seen the movie Fargo? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> but I, I, I tease my sister. My sister's a couple of years older than me, and she'll appreciate the fact that I pointed that out on live radio. But I tease her that she talks like the people in Fargo. And she disagrees with me, but she, Lori, you do speak like the people in Fargo, in case you're listening. Well, and I don't <clears> think <throat> I sound Southern. So um, I, I, I always like to think that I'm just... <clears throat> the average Joe when it comes to voice, but apparently that's not true. So you have uh, all of this experience and how did you decide to play the roles that you played on the various boards you've served on? How did that happen? Well, I have this. You, were you voluntold? Yeah. No, no. I I don't get that people get have success voluntelling you anything. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot of folks who would tell you that's true. Um, I have always had the genetic tendency to be a crusader. And so if there's something that seems broken, I'm out there wanting to fix it. And and I can remember, I think I was 19 in uh, California, working full-time, going to school at night, and helping volunteer to do a um, a community event. I think we called it the Council for Social and Economic Recovery I don't know, something uh, at 19, you think you can fix everything. So, uh, it was, um, it doesn't seem like that's worn off though. Um, okay. So that could be, uh, pretty true. I'm trying to be, I am a fixer yeah. and, um, and I'm, I'm good at troubleshooting. I'm good at getting to the meat of the problem. And, and now that I'm older and, and I've been around enough, I know where the resources are in a lot of cases. Isn't it, isn't it advantageous though to have that fixer quality given your role with your organization? Uh, critical. I mean, I, I had to have the fixer. I, I'm all about what, what are the problems and not just the problems today, not what's on my desk at the moment, but what are the problems intermediate and what are the problems longer term? And we've developed tools and models and metrics to be able to see around corners and, and, that's a forced discipline that we've had to develop as a result of the downturn. And, um, and, and it's an exceptional skill that, that I would recommend everybody learn how to do because if you're able to see what you think your business is going to do in six months or in 12 months, and I'm just not talking about revenues. I'm talking about how much financing you're going to need, how much inventory you're going to need, what your staffing you're going to need, what problems you're going to potentially encounter. And then you work on risk mitigation, all of that. Uh, is critical that you be able to look today, tomorrow, and um, down the road. One of the things that I think is impressive about you is you seem to have such a grasp on all of the various aspects because of your experience, you know, international uh, culture, international business, tax law, legal stuff. I mean, you want to know why? Because you had to? 
because you got to be able to call BS. And unless you, you would actually call BS on somebody? Oh, no, not me. Um, but most folks, I, I apparently put out enough of a vibe that, that people tend to not go there with me in, in, in many cases, but it does happen. And I've had to jump on a plane and fly across the planet to be able to have a showdown when, um, challenges came up that, that others in the organization couldn't handle and it meant somebody needed to go pound a desk. So, so, um, it can happen. But the fact that I have enough understanding, I'm not an engineer. But I employ a lot of engineers, yeah. and as we got involved in more and more technical stuff, I have the ability to sit down and review projects and drawings and and ask questions that allow us to uncover the risks and then figure out how to mitigate those, and that is critically valuable in our kind of business. One of the things that I think is also impressive uh, about you is all of this uh, expertise and experience, but how how do you determine how you budget your time? On a day-to-day basis, I is it a challenge? It's better for me right now in our business. We have the right amount of, of staff members. I have the right amount of uh, first and, and second tier leadership uh, bench strength, and um, there's a lot happening. We have a lot in the pipeline, and there's a lot of folks in place making stuff happen. So my role right now is to enable and encourage those folks to get their stuff done. And then I'm always keeping an eye on the financial side and, and making sure that things are happening and we're able to finance what we have in the pipeline. And so I'm always watching that before. So for right now, it's not a, um, a, a situation where it's requiring me to be absolutely in there, um, holding on for dear life. Now I, I'm always, I'm always there, but I do get involved in, um, some public uh, community activity work. And what I've done on that front, you ask, how do I choose? Well, I, I first started out just whoever asked me to do something, I'd say yes. And <laughs> that that only works for so long. Uh, now I'm getting a bit more selective, but I'm still involved on about 10 boards and a couple of them might uh, fade out a, a bit, but I'm taking on a, a, another organizational role in a cat rescue group. But I, um, I tend to be more selective about finding things where there is a big need for my kind of problem solving. And I'm not a, a fundraiser type of person, but, <clears throat> but I can help figure out how to get your organization from A to B and, and ultimately to wherever you want to go. And so I have, uh, carefully culled through the, the things that I'm involved with. And a couple of, first of all, my, my primary interest when I first got to, um, the Gwinnett was the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce. And I got active there as soon as I arrived yeah. in, in, uh, Georgia. And then I was chairman of, of the Gwinnett Chamber in 2011, and it's a very active, very vibrant chamber, and I continue to be on the executive board, and I am the uh, secretary, uh, so I'm I'm pretty involved on a regular basis with, with what's going on there. And to me, that drives quality of life, and so that adds to my ability to keep good employees. Um, then the, the second thing that I've been really active in in the last five years was um, I served on the Gwinnett Medical Hospital Board, and we were involved in a, a merger process and review of a bunch of options uh, ahead of that merger. 
And that was a extremely complex and frustrating um, evolution. And, and it was a process that was, you know, it was brutal because you, you couldn't, there was a lot of legal issues where you couldn't talk about things. You couldn't make folks understand and feel comfortable. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, we always knew that we were doing exactly what needed to be done and we had to do it all in confidence. But we ultimately accomplished a merger this year with Northside Hospital and really exciting things. This is going to be a huge um, change for Gwinnett's future of healthcare. Um, and, and we're really, really excited about that. Now I, I am now one of six members from Gwinnett who have moved to the Northside board. So that's exciting, but it's not oh, good for you. It's a, it's a quarterly meeting as opposed to one a month plus four committee meetings sure. a month. So it, it's, there's, a, I'm scaling down that a bit, but I also serve as the chair of the Lake Lanier Islands Development Authority. And I was appointed by Governor Deal <coughs> four or five years ago and I became the chair last year. And we are, we do the oversight for, um, the folks who operate Lanier Islands and the hotel property out there and the Margaritaville entity and, and there's work being done right now on a, um, we're doing planning work for a second resort out there and it's going to be beautiful and exciting. And so that's something that we're looking forward to in the next few years. I love doing that. I'm, I'm passionate about the lake. I was passionate about it from the moment I arrived in Georgia. So that's my other major thing. I'm involved in several others, but the, the latest one that has adopted me is uh, the Cat Rangers organization in Buford. Uh, I love cats, and um, they're a rescue operation, and I am helping them to get themselves more organized, and and um, and I'm helping them rescue cats. <laughs> and we actually um, – we helped them rescue a feral colony about four or five months ago and, and got 15 of the 30 adopted out or, or oh, placed in barns. Yes. Well, the other 15, we built a 16 by 30 foot kitty-o behind our office and they live at our office and we, uh, care. It's a beautiful kitty-o. My husband built it with all kinds of ramps and play runs and, and it's fabulous. But so we have 15 of which we are now probably three quarters of them went from being totally feral and wide to pettables. So we are socializing these cats and, and they're doing amazingly well. And it's been, um, an interesting, I don't know how I got into it. Some of these things you just, you got to fix a problem and you are the fix. So, but. It's well, a it labor seemed, of love. It seems like some of these things have found you. You mentioned the word selective, and um, you know, from speaking with you, it seems like uh, you have all of the things in place to have the balance, or to have some balance, or to have times where you maybe have ba- some balance. Uh, you know, you have the lake, you have the painting, you have the walks, and you have this other thing now with the cats. Uh, it seemed. How did you get selective? Was that an evolution? Yes. Was there an event that happened? Tell us about that. <clears throat> I had to um, – you just found – the painting made me realize that I needed to find time to paint. That was the first thing. 
So when I realized just how much joy that brought to my life, I thought, okay, now it's the season of me. And I realized that as hard as the journey is, it's always going to be hard. And if you don't stop and create a life worth living, then you're going to find it's gone. And my mother, I'm 60 years old and my mother passed it at 61. And, um, and all of that makes you begin to realize that, wait a minute, what's this all about? And so it lends itself to instant perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that, um, and my sister and brother and I have gotten closer over the years as a, as a result of that. Do they live here? No, my brother is in Colorado, my sister's in California. Okay. So, so, but we have, we were never, we all went different directions our whole life. And then after both of our parents passed, we began to realize that, hey, we've got us and we need to yeah. honor that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, great point. Uh, you know, you're only, uh, dancing on this earth for a short while and you got to make the most of it. You mentioned that your dad was a sheriff. Did you ever have any inclination to to follow him in that? In law enforcement? Are you kidding? <laughs> I think you'd have been good at it. <clears throat> do you realize? I, okay, I am. I do have a, um, when you grow up in law enforcement, you think like <clears throat> a cop and you think like a detective and you uh, you just are, you know, my motto on everything is trust but verify. And I'll, my business all of the people in business tell them, trust but verify. I don't care what a customer or supplier or anybody tells you. I said, you better have other data to val- validate because yeah. that's just the way you, – if you're going to be successful in anything, that's what you have to do. So, And I think that probably comes from the law enforcement thing. But I will tell you um, – I admired the law enforcement thing. I watch forensic files all the time, so I can probably either commit a crime or solve a crime pretty well. But the sheriff's role, my father started out as a police officer and then a detective, and then he was chief of police of a couple of small communities before he ran for sheriff. But So how long was he involved in law enforcement? Since the early 60s to his retirement in, I think it was 82-ish. So and, 20 plus years. Yeah. But you had to run for office as sheriff. So there were two elections involved and those were brutal. And those, How so? well, you know, you had back in those days, even as a kid, we would walk precincts. We would hand address 50,000 mailers and, um, he had to go to cajillions events. And of course, as kids, you had to get drug along to a lot of these. And, and there was, um, you know, toward the end of a couple of the election cycles, you got mudslinging going on. Not oh, yeah. he was always really, really take the high road. He was the big Buford Pusser kind of guy. He didn't make a lot of, he didn't talk a lot, but it was in his silence that he spoke volumes. And even as a kid growing up, um, he he didn't he didn't talk or yell or, or you didn't hear that voice, but in your head you knew his expectations were high. What I did learn is is that it was better not to ask permission. <laughs> it was better to do what I wanted and then have to explain it later if I needed to. So because asking permission, his only answer was no. And and uh, so, but but uh, but the whole world of politics to me it, it takes a really special person. And I and I like to support folks who are uh, chasing political campaigns for that reason because. I, I would never do it, and I am so grateful that there are people who will take on what are such thank, thankless roles. And so that's kind of what I learned from that family. 
I want to come back to something you just were touching on, and that is the whole asking permission thing. Hmm. Give us, can you give us an example or two of uh, when you didn't ask permission and had to kind of explain to your father, uh, you know, back when you were living in his house? Oh, I can't. I, I can't remember. I, I just know that was my that was my standard mo. I, I, I rem- and I remembered at one point uh, realizing what I was doing, but I don't thinking that. Oh, yeah, this is my strategy, and so this is just. But I don't remember the specifics. Sorry. I'm- Were there ever things that you did that he didn't find out about? Or was he pretty clever and kind of? This is where I would say that O double H E double hockey stick word. Yes, um, yes. There's a huge list, and <laughs> and um, he's he's passed, but uh, I'm not letting any of those secrets out. Yeah. And nor should you. <laughs> One of the things that uh, uh, so what is with everything you have going on and all that you're contributing? What's the thing that you take the most satisfaction in? Making a difference. Uh, it sounds so simple and, and no, no, it's not. It's not simple. But it is making a difference, and I all that I want to be able to do is is make a difference in in as many ways as I can. And you know, I love it when when younger people will listen to me. You know, every once in a while, I get invited to teach, uh, speak at a college class or speak at a school or or oh my gosh, every once in a while, some young kid will ask your advice. And, and you'll think, wow, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> and, um, you just, you, you want to be able to share how they can avoid some of the things that you've screwed up. Cause I'm really good at screwing things up, not, not once, twice, but probably an average of three times before I get it really right. So. Yeah, I think, uh, uh you know, it is, it is interesting to help others and to be able to say, Hey, I, you know, I did it this way. It didn't turn out the way I wanted. And here's why. If I'm you, here, here is a tack that you should take. Here are the steps in rank order. And, um, uh, you know, I think 30 years ago, I, I think, uh, I thought maybe I knew more than I actually did. Um, and it's, you, you know, it's interesting how much smarter your parents get as, as you grow older. Isn't that the truth? And, uh, but it's, it's uh it's a place of gratitude that we get to come from by helping others maybe not take the same steps and make the same missteps as we did and i think that uh you know one thing that that shows up for me in this discussion is uh you know you had the courage to take these steps to get involved in that company and and maybe it was advantageous to not know have all the fear and not Absolutely. know all the stuff that you were walking into but uh you did it and you kind of Jumped off the cliff with your hair on fire. And, and sometimes tried, hung on by my fingernails. Yeah. And tried not to get burned and break yep. any limbs on the way yep. down. And yep. it sounds like you did that. Yeah, I got a few scars. But but uh, I think I've um, I've accomplished a lot of what, what I wanted. There's, there's um, not a whole lot of things I would have done differently. But um, I, I wish that... That I would win the lottery tomorrow because I'd build a whole bunch of manufacturing facilities and, and high tech manufacturing. And, um, and I'd probably do a lot more philanthropic things. So, so in a perfect world, that might be uh, the things that I would do more of. But, uh, but you notice that I didn't say I'd just go home and paint. I'd still have to be doing work stuff. Yeah, we find with a lot of the people on the show that they're high flyers, uh, that they're very, very active and, and, uh, they always need to be putting their energy and experience and acumen into something. 
And, uh, you know, I've read countless books that it said that talk about retiring and uh, a lot of executives don't retire because they struggle about what they would do. Um, I've heard others say, hey, it's really important to get up and go go to something or to a place to do something. You can't just sit home and, and do nothing. I totally agree with that. I will, however, say that as I have pushed myself to find time to paint, I have realized that I do enjoy quiet time. Yeah. I enjoy television time. And if you, uh, and I know there's a lot of junk out there and it's really hard to find the good stuff, but there is some good stuff out there. And so, okay. And I admit I will watch a, a reality show or two now and then. And, uh, to me, it's escapism. You know, I was the person, I remember a, a local newspaper in Texas did an article on me in, in the mid-80s, and they said, what do you do? And I said, w- with your time and this and that. And I said, well, you know, I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day, but then I go home at night and watch my VHS tapes of, of soap operas. And I Which watched one? All My Children and One Life to Live. And I watched All My Children for 35 years, and then they took that baby off, and I was in mourning. But, but you I know, got when they it. killed Jenny, that killed it for me. Oh, I remember Jenny. And I was like, and then she came back as a ghost, <laughs> and then Greg, you know, was messing with Greg's mind. I'm like, oh my okay, gosh, I'm, he really did watch all my children. I said, I'm out. I, I, you know. But it's all about escape. It's it's letting your mind go somewhere else, and so that was a tool. Well, I think it it's it's great that you recognize, hey, here's what I need to do to shut it off. Here's what I need to do to hit the reset button. Timing is everything. Uh, you're certainly, it seems to me from talking to you that you have complete control of your time and you can pick your spots. I'd like to think that I'm getting better at it. <laughs> well, I think it's an evolution, right? Because yeah. aren't you, oh, yeah. aren't you wired as the person that's driving the direction of the company to think, okay, I got to think about this mm-hmm. and then I got to think about that. And then I got to think about 30 days down the road, six months down the road, yep. six years down the road. Yep. There's always something to do. And in right? every organization, there's yeah. anything that I get involved in, that's the first thing I look at is, is okay, what are the risks and how do we mitigate them? And the new um, – anybody who's in the quality industry, which pretty much every service and manufacturing industry has uh, some knowledge of the ISO 9000 uh, uh, quality management system. And the, the latest revision on that focuses on risk mitiga- uh, management and – that's really what the world is all about in your personal life, in every aspect of business and community organizations. It's about how many risks can I see for today and tomorrow and down the road and how do I uh, mitigate those? And what is my backup plan and my backup plan B and C and D and and how do I protect myself? And if you can best prepare for those things um, up front. You're going to be more successful quicker. Well, and as the captain of the ship, you have to you have to see the rocks in the river mm-hmm. long before your boat ever gets close to them. Um, so, is it fair to say you strike me as a servant leader? And uh, the reason that now you outed yourself you 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 you've, you've taken the time to get engaged uh, in the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce because you feel responsible for making the community better for your folks to live in. I, for what it's worth, I think that's outstanding. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can contribute as the person that's driving the direction of the company. One of the ways is to obviously pay your employees and have jobs, but, but to also make their community that they live in better. I think that that's outstanding. Yeah. I, I think it's important. One of my key philosophies is as a business leader that 
it's not all about profit. You have to be a sustainable entity. You have to be profitable <clears throat> enough to, to finance yourself and control your destiny. So, so that's critical. That's the, the price of entry. However, beyond that, in my view, there are many stakeholders and, and those include when I make decisions and especially as I had to make critical decisions during the downturn, that I, you know, it's lonely at the top. You have to do on your own and you had to uh, think them through on your own and suffer. But I would think about my employees and their families. And I still do. Every decision that I make, I think, how is this going to impact them? How is this going to yeah. risk them? But so employees, um, customers, suppliers, and communities, I believe we're all stakeholders. So I, I try to factor in all of those things as I consider what to do in business. How do you drive engagement with the employees and the people within your organization? You mean, you mean in terms of getting them to work or getting them to volunteer or what? All of the above. Okay, I do not push employees to volunteer um, because poof, they have to work so dang hard. So I, there are certain ones who have an interest in mm -hmm. things that my CFO, for example, uh, serves on the board of the Partnership Against Domestic Violence here in Atlanta. And we support her fully in, in doing that. And others, if they have things where they're involved in on their family, we try to financially support that. So we help where we can. I don't say, please, I want you to go out and, and volunteer one day a month. Every once in a while, I'll come across something where maybe they're looking for volunteer engineers and I'll put it out there. But you sort of have to let those folks who are interested, let them bubble to sure. the top and then support them. And, and we do that. Um, in terms of, of the, the work that we do, look, it's all about keeping it, it's hard. What we do is what our customers, uh, don't want to do. We make it look easy when you're talking about international supply chain and domestic manufacturing supply chain. And so we're trying to make their jobs easier and it's hard work and everybody is constantly having to, to battle through something. And um, what I do to help them is try to keep our environment from being toxic. Yeah, We try to keep our, our team um, balanced so that if I get employees who aren't carrying their weight, the pressure bubbles to the top and it's like, hey, somebody fix this. And I'm very sensitive to that yeah. because your weakest team member is going to drag your whole team into mediocrity. So, so we're um, – I try to facilitate that as best I can, make it a good place to work. What do you see as the biggest, as the biggest challenge of your organization and in your industry right now? Might be, um, there's so many. Right now I don't have fear of um, what the economy is going to do. A year ago, I had a high level of concern that there was a, a recession coming around the corner. I, I have less. I'm more comfortable. I think we've crossed a few hurdles on the macro level that will help keep things somewhat stable. I believe the election is going to be a huge issue. I don't know what it's going to mean. I don't know what I think. Yeah. Um, all I know as a business person is for me uh, keeping things stable – is what we need. And I don't care what stable is. If I know what I'm managing to, I'll yeah. figure it out. 
but give me something stable because I can't go every four years and and jump through hoops a different direction. And so that probably is the overarching business risk um, for everybody is is the unknown of who's gonna who's gonna lead us for whatever period of time. So. You know, you mentioned that your business, uh, you manage your business through uh, a less than advantageous uh, set of circumstances, the downturn. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> tell us about tell us about that whole process and what you learned and and uh, uh, what steps you're taking okay, to so prevent let, that. Let me tell you what I learned. When when we were flying high in 2004 and 05 and, and the world was just going great and the wind energy market had huge margins and we were just rolling in it um, and Obama was elected and and the outlook was that there was going to be 20 years of really strong wind energy growth and and production tax credit support and and the, it appeared the margins would continue to 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 be there for uh, long into perpetuity and and then the downturn occurred when Lehman Brothers fell they were the biggest financier of wind energy projects. So, and I didn't know it at the time, but boy, did I know it a year later when the project started going hard stops and we had millions of dollars in the pipeline of inventory on purchase orders that giant companies were, were stopping and saying, Hey, wait, we can't take this stuff. You know, I know it's in your yard and you got suppliers to pay, but. We darn near did not make it. I had to negotiate with uh, suppliers around the world, with banks, and um, we we barely got through that. But I just force a will. I mean, if I had given up, we had 65, 70 families who would have been out of work. And you don't, with an international company especially, your reputation is everything. That is our currency. And our ability to be successful around the world is about what folks think about whether we're going to stand behind what we say. And so we had to struggle through that. And, and I, I could give you blood and guts detail on it and it would keep you up at night. But we made it through. And the lesson that I learned, I thought the Great Depression could never happen again. Because I thought that after that happened, uh, controls were put into place that would keep us from going too far down. When the downturn occurred in 08, 09, 010, 11, I mean, it was a slow motion catastrophe. Um, I never expected that. And had I known that winter always returns, I would have been more careful about uh, taking on debt and uh, just having more backup plans that because that was um, for me unexpected. I just thought that, OK, you know, we've we've been able to keep growing like seems like forever since the Depression. But no. So winter always returns is a huge thing that I learned. And so now I'm I'm more sensitive to uh, looking at models on every aspect of our, our income statements and balance sheets and, and how we're going to what things are going to change. and Did it alter how you guide the company, that experience? Oh, so much. We, uh, I am uh, more risk-averse, and I have to force myself at times to say, okay, wait a minute. Part of your job as a business leader is to take risk. And so I have to be measured in, okay, I want to take risk, 
and I want to make sure that I've educated myself on, on the risk I'm taking and then I want to mitigate where I can, but I still have to take some risk. And so I recognize there's a responsibility to take risk, but I also am, am more careful about it. What's next for you? Um, gosh, well, after this, I'm going to head back to the office. Um, <laughs> uh, we have, we have been really, um, effective at diversifying our customer product lines and, and accomplishing the building of a, a foundation of business that's really strong and diversified. Um, it was really heavily weighted toward wind for a long time. And now we don't, if we don't do any wind business, it doesn't matter because it doesn't make us much money, but it, it, it's, it's the other parts of the business that are making things happen. So we are building up. I have in mind some numbers that I'd like to be hitting and, and there will come a time in the next five, six, seven, eight years where it'll be time to bring in some outside equity and sell part. Some are all of mine and, and I have bench strength, second tier owners. Um, well, one, well, there are three owners now. I, I own majority and I have one executive VP who's like the heir apparent. Uh, that we've, he, he is capable of, of running the company. I have a partner in Texas who, of course, also could run the company, but he will ultimately want to sell out. So there will be an exit plan, um, at some point in the next decade for sure. Um, it's just a matter of, I want to find that sweet spot. I want to get to a certain point. And then ideally we would find a, a synergistic partner who also had capital that would allow us to go to the next level. I have some things in mind that I'd love to see us also be doing, but right now we want to do what is what we're in full control of. We like being in control of our destiny, and so for now we want to ride this train. we got a lot in our pipeline, and so we need to work our plan. Is there an ideal customer that you guys are uh, searching for? Yep, the guys that we like. I am all about doing business with people that, that I like. And, um, for that matter, I'm all about hanging out with people who pass the cool test. I mean, if I don't like being around you, I don't want to buy from you. I don't want to sell to you. I don't yeah. want to drink with you and I don't really want to talk to you. So, yeah. I mean, it's like no trust. Yeah. So it's, um, so for me, the customers who are fair and reasonable, who recognize that it's always going to be a give and take relationship, I don't want to make a deal difficult for them. I want it to be good for everybody. And that doesn't always, sometimes you gotta, you know, go to the mat. I don't, don't let my speaking make it sound like I'm not tough because when. I don't think anybody's picked up on that. Okay. So, cause if, if things get tough, man, I will be there on the wrestling mat with, with you, um, having it out. But, but my objective is to try to make things, um, good for everybody. And even on a bad day, when we run into a problem, we want to be able to turn it into an opportunity that shows this is how we can solve a problem. So um, that's really my only criteria on a customer is is if they're fair and reasonable, and those are the guys I want. Yeah. Well, you've been invited uh, to be on the show because a past Tuesdays with Corey guest highly recommended you. And one of the things that I ask every guest on the show is what separates you? What separates you from the people that compete against you? In business, it's about our commitment to the customer. 
relentless is what we we say. Uh, there is nothing. It is in our DNA. I don't care what the cost is. We will do the right thing for the customer. And, and that has always been our case, and it's always fared us well. We have a great reputation yeah. around the world. And then um, in my personal life and, and my community in general, it's passion. <laughs> and sometimes people will say, oh, my gosh, she's so passionate about these things she does. It's like what they're really trying to say is I'm a pain in the butt. But but um, if I'm involved, it's generally something that I am totally passionate about. And so I'm going to give everything I can to, to help make a difference. Yeah, I get that loud and clear. It seems like if you're going to be involved, so am I repeating in, myself or something? <laughs> uh, no, it, what I where I was going with this, I'm actually going to make a point here. Uh, uh, it seems to me that if uh, in knowing you and having this time with you, that if you're going to get involved in something, you're going to put your chips in the middle, and you're gonna you're gonna they're going to get all of Terry, not some of Terry, which right. I think is really uh, really cool. Um, so if you could give the younger version of Terry, you, some advice, what would it be? With all that you've learned and all of your experiences. Okay, how long is this show? <laughs> I think we're probably uh, beginning to wind it up, so I'll try to give you the short version. I think that um, experience is critical. I think that um, if I... People who want to go, say, start a business, the most successful business people are the one who worked in that industry and then either bought the company or started their own company. That is the best success. So if you have something that you're interested in, go learn that business. Yeah. So if you can do that, you're going to mitigate business risk right there. Um Learn everything you can about business. And there's so many people, starting with me, who will talk to you about about the hows and whys. There's lots of resources about business stuff. So if that's what you want to do, that's great. If it's education and you want to go to school and be a teacher or, or go philosophy, whatever it is that you want to get a degree in, I, I would say that beware of student debt. If um, – yeah. If I think we have to be very, very careful about that. I think it's overdone. I think we've created a huge problem. And I think that getting more kids, even if it takes them longer to get through school, um, working through school is, is, is a better plan. Um, technical skills. I believe that we have undervalued tradesmen for generations now. And I believe that we should be honoring those folks. I think there should be award programs that are, uh, shown, showing Who's doing what? I think there are great fields with honorable people, and we need to make that another valued profession. Again, um, I think that uh, debt management is important. If if kids could understand that um, their ability to do what they want is driven by their ability to stay out of debt and save money, and I and I'm not great at it. And I've never been great at it. I've done I've done well, but um, I wish that I had done so much better. But if you're able to do that, you know, I've watched people who have been able to retire at 50, 55, and they've just had a regular my, – my sister, she's worked in government for 
all of her life and retired at 55 mm. at something like 75% of her salary, which you're not going to see those anymore, but still. Good for her. But, but yeah, so there's <clears throat> something to be said. And she also paints. So, so she's got the ability to control her destiny. Now that wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't be high flying enough for me. So I had to have a, a more risk reward uh, path. But but those are key things that allow people to be in control of their destiny. Whatever you choose to do, if you can protect yourself um, financially, then you're more likely to be at peace because it's the times that will cause you the most stress in your life. If there were a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, what insight and what advice would you maybe have for her? <clears throat> I think in, in any role, um, working from the bottom up is there is a lot to be said for working from the bottom up. When 100%. I look at people on, in, in my organization, I want them to learn as many things as possible. Um, and, you know, the guys who are the most valuable are the utility players who can, I can move around as, as the, the business changes and, and do different things. But if you learn a business from the ground up, man. That's where that, that BS meter, your BS meter is a lot more sensitive. Yeah, the Swiss you, Army knife. That's what we yeah, call it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I like that Swiss Army knife. So that's probably. You're going to steal that and not give me credit I, for it, I aren't you? I think I might. <laughs> but um, no, I think that's probably the, the most valuable. You got to, and never stop learning. Yeah. You, you got to always be making sure you're on top of what's going on in the world. Well, Terry, you've had uh, tremendous success uh, in your tenure and your role, many business roles. Um, we want to let the listenership get in touch with you. And if they wanted to do that, how would they do that? Well, our website is uh, cabinc.com, C-A-B-I-N-C.com. And so you can start there. And, and if you if you Google me, I'm pretty much everywhere. <laughs> so so I'm pretty sure people can find me if uh, they have a computer. So. Well, Terry, you've been a great guest. We appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Continued success, and thank you for being such a great guest on Tuesdays with Corey. My pleasure. 